Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello, and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Trail Mix is the short format episodes of our show. While our long format episodes explore one hiking trail in one national park, one park at a time, Trail Mix allows us to dive deeper into things we didn't get to cover in our long format episodes. That's right. And this Trail Mix episode is all about the Antiquities Act, or what they call our show when we take it on the road. That's right, because we're old. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you know about how national parks and national monuments are created? Well, I do know that it takes an act of Congress. Uh huh. There's a difference in the designation. I mean, there's quite a few designations mm-hmm. when it comes to the National Park Service. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, nationals. We've talked about national scenic roadways, talked about national seashores, and there's a lot. Mm-hmm. National rivers. National rivers. Uh, national historic parks, national military sites. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes a national monument becomes a national park. That's true. So I do know that. Yes. So, and oftentimes, like a national monument is a little bit smaller. Sometimes. But not always. Yeah. Because there are some national parks that are not very big. That's true. Think about Gateway Arch, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely a lot of national monuments that are bigger than Gateway Arch, for sure. So, yeah. I mean, you definitely, like, are circling the drain there, for sure. But not everything has to be declared in an act of Congress. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It's an only a national park that is an act of Congress. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. It's not um, national monuments. I think can't that be in a executive order? Mm-hmm. There we go. And we'll learn a little bit more about that today. Great. So the National Park Service's whole bag is to, quote, preserve unimpaired the natural and cultural resources and values of the national park system for the enjoyment, education, and inspiration of this and future generations, end quote. And the Antiquities Act is one of the most helpful arms in making this a reality. The Antiquities Act, which was signed into law by President Theodore Roosevelt in June of 1906, was truly the first act to provide a general legal protection to cultural and natural resources 
that were of a historic or scientific interest to the federal government. This allowed for the creation and protection of some of our most beloved natural spaces, including Petrified Forest National Park, Assam Volcanic National Park, Olympic National Park, Denali National Park, and Death Valley National Park, among others. While national parks are created through an act of Congress, sometimes even being bundled into legislation for other purposes, for example, White Sands National Park in New Mexico was a part of the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act. In order to be considered a national park, the space must meet certain criteria. New park spaces need to demonstrate criteria for national significance, sustainability, feasibility, and management alternatives. That being said, when a park is created nowadays, it's rare that the space isn't protected in some other way by the federal government already. Take, for example, New River Gorge, which was already designated as the National River in 1978 prior to becoming a national park in 2020, or the aforementioned White Sands, which was designated as a national monument under President Hoover in 1933 prior to becoming a national park in 2020 as well. The designation of a national monument is a helpful stepping stone. The parks that I mentioned earlier, Petrified Forest, Lassen, Olympic, Denali, and Death Valley, all were designated as national monuments via the Antiquities Act prior to their assimilation into the larger and often more prestigious, at least in thought, National Parks Club. That is because making a national monument only takes a presidential decree through the Antiquities Act rather than an act of Congress. And knowing how slow Congress is to act, this makes a lot of sense. And that became the aim of the act when it was established, a helpful workaround to preserve spaces that should be preserved. The parks that came from the Antiquities Act may or may not have dreamed of being called a capital N national park when they were established, but rather the goal in utilizing the Antiquities Act to establish them was to preserve them in some manner. With such a unilateral power of one branch of government, in this case, the executive branch's ability to set aside land for national designation without approval from Congress, there comes controversy. And much of this controversy and hand-wringing is still in play to this day, including the political nature of some of the sites chosen and the ire of land developers and miners who may have vested interest in the spaces preserved. The Antiquities Act came about for many of these reasons. Sites in the American Southwest, specifically those which contain petroglyphs, ruins, and remains, were of a particular concern. Congress was slow to act to establish new national park land, so with a push from the archaeology community and sympathetic government officials, the Antiquities Act was conceived. One such sympathetic government official was William A. Richards, former governor of Wyoming, and at the turn of the century, the commissioner of the General Land Office. Richards was, like many conservationists and outdoor enthusiasts at the time, disappointed at the interest in these sites that was held by Congress. Instead, he turned his hope towards the executive branch, and at the time, that branch was Theodore Roosevelt, 26th President of the United States. Roosevelt was a conservationist, someone that believed that nature should be protected and used properly. This is different from a preservationist who believed that nature should be protected from use altogether. Roosevelt was no stranger to conservation, and in fact, the nation had already had an act on record that gave the executive unilateral power when it came to conservation, the Forest Reserve Act of 1891. This act states that, 
quote, the President of the United States may, from time to time, set apart and reserve in any state or territory having public land bearing forests in any part of the public lands wholly or in part covered with timber or undergrowth, whether of commercial value or not, as public reservations. And the President shall, by public proclamation, declare the establishment of such reservations and limits thereof. End quote. So in a nutshell, this was the bones of the Antiquities Act, or at least the inspiration. The FRA, or Forest Reserve Act, had four presidents that added to the splendor of protected forest land throughout the United States. Benjamin Harrison, Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, and Theodore Roosevelt. While together, Harrison, Cleveland, and McKinley would designate 25 million acres of forest land under the FRA, Roosevelt designated a whopping 141 million acres in his presidency alone. This prompted an amendment to the FRA, which would limit the scope of what lands presidents could designate and included a name switch from forest preserves to national forests. So it was clear that if there were any president willing to utilize the power of their office for protection of natural spaces, spaces of cultural and scientific value to the nation, that president was Theodore Roosevelt. That being said, there was a growing concern specifically of those in the Western United States to the federal land grab that had already happened with the use of the FRA. Not only were developers, loggers, and miners concerned, but ranchers as well. Considerable debate was had when it came to the scope and size that could be designated as a national monument. After much ado, the act read that a monument should be confined to, quote, the smallest area compatible with proper care and management of the objects to be protected, end quote. This left a great deal of gray area and has been a sticking point in a hundred plus years of the act's existence. But while it seems as though the act was an overreach, in a lot of ways, this was conservation and preservation work marrying together. The original intent of the Antiquities Act was to protect any site with conspicuous ruins and the artifacts of ruins therein. Specifically and originally, the goal was for sites of the Southwest. With greater awareness of these sites, specifically after major expositions and world's fairs where antiquities of the Southwest were on prominent display, there was a rise in looting and destruction in these spaces. Again, much of the push for the act came from archaeologists and museum scholars who were actively studying these sites and reporting the horrendous conditions therein. And while the intent of the act was to protect these spaces and not be used so wantonly as the Forest Reserve Act had been, over time the parameters of what could be considered under the Antiquities Act seemed to broaden, even if that language was not added within the act itself. Part of that stretch for what was possible to be preserved came in the very loose language of the act itself. And while many of the first sites that were designated as national monuments fell within the American Southwest, eventually these spaces stretched beyond this geographical area and in some cases were directly used as stepping stones in the creation of a national park. Take, for example, Lassen Peak and Cinder Cone National Monuments, which would eventually become Lassen Volcanic National Park. These spaces are not in the American Southwest, but Lassen was one of the first to become a national monument. And then there's the case of the Grand Canyon National Monument, which was indeed a national monument before it was a national park. Having failed several times in Congress to advance to a vote for national park status, the FRA was used in 1893 by Benjamin Harrison to create the Grand Canyon Forest Reserve, ironic for a space mostly devoid of trees. This began a pushback from local residents that argued the status of this space, and the use of the Antiquities Act and the National Monument designation provided protection to the space before it became a national park in 1919. So it's wild to me that this kind of workaround for preserving a space 
was allowed after all of this like kerfuffle over Roosevelt declaring 141 million acres of forest land. And it was like, well, here's a blank check for you to do the basically the same thing, just not with national forest, with sites of scientific and, you know, natural beauty. Mm. Like, it's mm. just wild. Like, it seems Congress was drunk. Go home, you're drunk, Congress. Well, Which, I mean... <laughs> have I we mean, been paying attention to Congress Have we been lately? paying attention to what's <laughs> happening lately? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm fascinated by how things have landed as far as like, what governmental entity has the power to designate certain things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, obviously, we have here, right, like, at least it was the FRA, right, that was sort of like the blank check for a president to, to be able national to forest. designate national forest right. area. Yeah. And so then... Teddy Roosevelt designates 141 million acres of forest land. Yeah. And then they're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> yeah. capitalism. We need capitalism. Right. Now. Mm-hmm. So we can't do that. Yeah. And I mean, not that Teddy Roosevelt was like the best either. There's oh, God. plenty of No, faults. no, no. We're not, yeah. celebra- we're not yeah. celebrating him. Yeah. No, no. These are things that happened and the people that made them happen to sort of bring us where we are now. Yeah. As far as like, yeah. you know, the government's working and the government's relationship with land. Yeah. Right. I just also think it's fascinating too. Like clearly the goal in a lot of cases here with these national monuments was to eventually make them national parks. Clearly there was a lot of intent there. That was motive for them. And it was sort of like, okay, well, we'll, I have this power. Oh my God, look at this national monument I created. If you want to make a national park, you can. I mean, it's there. You might as well. (laughs) Right. Right. As I bat my eyes at you, Congress. The president going, Going like, you know, I've basically made dinner. All you have to do is eat it, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of situation. Yeah. So, and that sort of has helped to shape, you know, how things work now. Yeah. And while many spaces were designated as national monuments and left in their original acreage, plenty of sites were either expanded and or had adjacent federal land declared as a national monument. This sometimes resulted in national monuments abutted to one another in some cases. The expansion of the original monument or a larger tract of parkland should the monument become a national park. And as stated before, while many spaces in the Southwest were protected because of the Antiquities Act, as originally intended, just as many spaces outside of this corner of America found the spotlight of national monument as well. Olympic National Park, Acadia, and Katmai all received national monument status prior to spaces like Bryce Canyon in the very region that the act was scripted for. And this trend continued as the limits of the Antiquities Act were almost always stretched. But as time wore on, there was growing concern with the widening gap between the national parks and the national monuments in not only funding, but development and access. National parks were better attended to and had more funding available to them, while national monuments survived on less. Oftentimes feeling like the feldspar in a bejeweled crown of national parks. Y'all, I'm going to just take a moment. (laughs) Mike wrote this trail mix, and that was a beautiful sentence. (laughs) The feldspar in a bejeweled crown of national parks. Fool's gold, baby. But the spaces themselves were now cared for and protected, which allowed for some deeper breaths in the lungs of conservationists, albeit without the means to make them shine like the national parks. And it's not as though the national monuments in their creation did not weigh heavy on the heads of the executive, because in some ways there was a political gain and loss to circumventing Congress and declaring a space a national monument. Since the Antiquities Act's inception, a multitude of presidents 
monuments have added to the list of national monuments within the national park system, President Obama adding the most amount of acreage of any president. But with the power of the executive under the Antiquities Act, adding to the list of monuments is not the only thing possible. Presidents can also enlarge or diminish monuments as they see fit. One thing they can't do, according to a 1938 opinion of the Attorney General, is revoke an existing designation. This power does not escape Congress, however, as they might alter the size, convert them to different designated areas like national parks, or outright abolish them. So while the power of the pen, when it comes to the Antiquities Act, does lie with the president, there is some oversight to be had by Congress. But for the most part, in regards to national monuments, that has been favorable. And again, while the law was written with narrow scope in mind, and specifically to protect, quote, historic landmarks, prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic and scientific interest, end quote, large, quote, land grabs by presidents often caused ire from the public and lawmakers alike. This ire has led to pushback, as in Wyoming, with the creation of Grand Teton National Park and the subterfuge of the Rockefellers and the federal government, and in Alaska after President Jimmy Carter declared 17 national monuments in one day, which covered over 56 million acres. In both of those cases, laws were enacted to provide limits regarding the declaration of federal land. And in some cases, the pushback has even led to the decreasing in size of national monuments already in existence, as was the case with Grand Staircase, Escalante, and Bears Ears National Monuments. The former designated under President Clinton and the latter under President Obama. When the 45th president took office, he set to reduce the size of these monuments, a move that was harshly criticized by many and subsequently reversed when President Biden took office. And while the monuments have been restored, the case against the size of these monuments has been brought to court, arguing that the scope of size for what is being preserved is too large. The results of this case are still pending as of the launch of this episode. However, parties with vested interests should look at the Grand Canyon for an example of how this case may shake out. Originally, as a national monument, the Grand Canyon measured 0.8 million acres. The size was justified by President Theodore Roosevelt as the object that he said was being protected was the canyon itself. Okay, so with the Grand Canyon case, what was argued by Theodore Roosevelt was that you were protecting the canyon itself. Yeah. And so this whole thing about Grand Staircase, I'm not as versed in this lawsuit. I think there's a considerable interest. And we talked about this in our um, episode about the 2021 parks victories and losses. There's considerable mm. interest by like outdoor companies and um, I believe mining companies that oh. would like access to the land. Like I they see. feel like the land and that was part of the reason there was a reduction in the size of the monument was for under drilling. President 45 was for exploitation of the land. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, that is what I yeah. figured. Yeah. It's not like they were like, oh, let's, we really want to put up a mall. Like right. they're not going to put up a mall. Right. Like it's going to be like, that's not going to be the, the angle for, of capitalism that we're coming at this no, land from. No, 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 no. It's like to use and strip shopping. the land basically of all its resources. Right. You know? So I right. do think, you know, if we think about the Antiquities Act and the whole reason that it was an enacted to begin with was at a time in America where the country was still relatively young. The country had been industrialized at this point. The railroad was important um, 
cars were not there just yet, but people were starting to see more of the country, more of the country was being opened up. So I think there was a real fear that so many of these spaces, especially spaces that had cultural significance, although obviously we know that based off of what the Antiquities Act has done, those spaces aren't just culturally significant spaces, they're spaces of natural splendor and beauty. I think there was a real fear that those spaces were going to be developed and eaten up. Um, So I think looking at the case, especially out of Utah with Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, I do think that there's a lot of depth to both of those. There's a lot of interest in what happened when President Clinton declared Grand Staircase and why it took so long for Bears Ears to become a national monument when Obama had finally gone in and declared that. But I think a lot of it relies on the fact that these spaces are beautiful. These spaces have cultural significance, even if it's not to the majority of Americans, to indigenous people who once inhabited those spaces. Certainly. So I think there's an argument from that side of the coin to ensure that these spaces are protected. Um, And I think that the Antiquities Act does a good job at allowing space to be protected in a way that is going to preserve it for, as the National Parks hopes to do, this and future generations. The sources for today's episode include the National Park Service, the essay National Monuments to National Parks by Robert W. Ryder on NPSHistory.com. The report National Monuments and the Antiquities Act from the Congressional Research Service. The policy paper Monumental Debate, What Past Reforms of the Antiquities Act Can Teach Us About Current Controversies by Jonathan Wood and the National Parks Conservation Association. And now let's end this trail mix with a game. What game have you prepared for us, Mike? So I've written the game. It's called Glow Up. And this game is all about national parks that were once national monuments, but had a different name. Mm. So you're going to need to name the national park based off the clue that I give you with the old name, which is the national monument. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay, Great. Because so many of these parks did glow up. A lot of them had the same name from national monument to national park. New River Gorge, for example. For example. National River to national park. But we talked about Lassen. I think it was Lassen Peak and Cinder Cone. That became, those two national monuments became Lassen Volcanic. So there were sections of that. Those were two abutted Abutted. park spaces. Dusty made fun of me for using the word abutted. Um, I didn't make fun of you. It was a beautifully (laughs) used word. But I do think that that happens more often than you're thinking when it comes to the National Monument spaces, abutted spaces. So for glow up for 100. This Northwestern National Park once touted the name of the home of the gods, Mount Olympus, when it was a national monument. When it became a national park, there was only a little bit of a name change, which it also shares with the peninsula it occupies. What is Olympic National Park? That's right. So it went from Mount Olympus to Olympic National Park. Okay, great. For 200, this Southern National Park, originally Fort Jefferson National Monument, was designated to act as an advance post for ships patrolling the Gulf of Mexico and the busy shipping lanes of the South. What is Biscayne? Incorrect. It Everglades. No. Oh, it is Dry Tortugas. Yes. <laughs> I, that was my original guess, no. but I was like, I mean, Dry Tortugas is so far away from the land, and I was like, if it's if they're shipping, if they're bringing stuff, right? Yeah. That's what you said, right? Yeah. Shipping lanes. Shipping lanes? Yeah. Oh, it was part of the shipping lane? It was to, like, patrol those busy shipping lanes. Oh, I oh, see. Yeah. Okay, I got it. You I'm, got it? I'm connecting now. <laughs> I'm okay. like, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a port on Dry Tortugas. No. Okay. But it was a fort. Not a port, but a fort. But a fort. <laughs> For 300. This Utah National Park once had the name Makuntuweep, 
when it was a national monument. In the language of the Southern Paiute, it means Straight Canyon. While this name would have shown reverence for the indigenous people whose land it once was, when the park was redesignated as a national park, it took the cue from Mormon settlers and their views of heaven in its name. What is Zion National Park? That's correct. That's correct. Okay, for 400. This eastern national park, with a mountain that experiences the first sunrise in the United States from October through March, was once named Sir de Monts, after a French nobleman and explorer. Eventually, once more land was added, the name changed to Lafayette National Park before it was changed once more to its current and hopefully final version. What is Acadia National Park? That's correct. And for 500. This southwestern national park, once named Lehman Caves National Monument, is a 4.5-hour drive from Sin City and about four hours, give or take, from Salt Lake City, and nothing but desert in between. What is Carlsbad Caverns? Incorrect. Oh, I'm going to guess again. It's caves, right? It's not. I, I mean, I think there might be some caves there. We haven't been there. Oh. Oh, what is Great Basin National Park? That's correct. There we go. And that's Glow Up. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. To find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gaze at the National Parks.com. That's Gaze, G A Z E. Artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the gay shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Sklios on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge while recording this episode that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the lot of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs>